B2B has always had a marketplace dynamic. There's a reason that there are all these industry events, right? Like, I mean, right now, like I could go to Miami and go to like four different events in this field, just in Miami. Like I wouldn't even have to leave Miami. I could just go to different places at these various events. You'd be like, why are all these events happen? Because they're networking opportunities. They're how people do business. And like the publisher acts as like a matchmaker between a buy and a sell side. That's how they make money. I wouldn't want to go into areas where there's no money that doesn't last. I mean, that would be like a hobby, not yeah. like a business. Right. Like I like running. Like I could write, I could, I love running. I could write a running newsletter. It'd be easy. I would write it every day. I don't see a path to making money. So I don't do that. So I think that there'll be different types of media. And I think Substack is kind of pointing the way towards that. A lot of the things going on in Substack are a little bit different than what they would be like on like a website, I feel like. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top-tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empires or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones and let's dive in. This week on Media Empires, we're sharing a conversation I had with Brian Morrissey, founder and CEO of Burl Media Group, editor-in-chief at KDM, and co-founder of The Black Canary Coffee. Brian shares insights on the evolving media landscape, shifts in the marketplace, like the move from ad-driven revenue to subscriptions, lucrative niches, the future of micromedia, the rise of platforms like Substack that enable more independence for creators, and more. This conversation took place in 2023, and since recording, Brian's podcast and newsletter, The Rebooting, launched a private membership tier. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, welcome to Media Empires. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me on. So Brian, by way of introduction, when you look back at the arc of your career, you know, what you've done with rebooting now, what you did uh, with Digiday before, um, what is sort of the thread that that ties your work together or the sort of threads that you've kept pulling in, in your career? I mean, I think the, I don't know if there's one thread, but I think the, the commonality is having one foot in being part of a profession undergoing like profound changes because of challenges to its business model. And on the other hand, my coverage area and specialty has been in these business models. And so it's both living it and also studying it and writing about it and talking about it on podcasts and stuff. Yeah. And how do you kind of define your moonshot with, uh, with rebooting or how, how do you define your mission or what gets you really excited uh, in, ter in terms of like what you're working towards, you'd say? I mean, the way I think about it is like, I want to build like a community of people who want to build like a sustainable media ecosystem. Because I think what I've found like over the years I've gone through my career is there's the stuff that people say like on stage at conferences and on podcasts too often and stuff like this and in Q and A's and stuff. And then the real stuff that they talk about, like at the bar or over coffee and there's a gap, right? And I think what I've noticed is there is a lot of people are frustrated within the industry with the business models that either that they've had to adapt because of the externalities that exist with platforms being dominant or just because the the business has often been mismanaged. And I think we're at this point in time where there's a broad agreement that the media 
system is severely challenged. I don't want to say broken. I know a lot of people like to say it, but it is pretty broken, right? I mean, I don't think many people are very happy with the current state of it. There, It doesn't mean that it's doomed or anything like that, but I think, and I think that there's a lot of positive momentum going in certain directions when it comes to having direct relationship with the audience, moving from advertising systems that are controlled by platforms to balancing that out with subscriptions. I don't think advertising is all bad, but I do think having subscriptions is beneficial, not just to, as far as recurring revenue and stuff like this. I think that too often media has become, and media business models have become adversarial against the audience. And I don't think that's any way to run a business long-term. I mean, generally, Treating your customers like shit is not a long-term strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is it too simple to say that over the past, you know, decade in in media, a lot of the excitement and hype went to the consumer media companies, but in fact, a lot of the returns or or substance was in the more quiet uh, B2B uh, niche uh, uh, media businesses? Or how would you characterize that? Well, I mean, all the money went to the technology companies, right? I mean, you know, whoever controls the distribution, you know, sort of controls uh, the system and technology companies, platforms, whether it's Google, uh, whether it's Facebook or Apple, you know, they have distribution choke points. And I think now it's becoming clear that is probably untenable in, in the long run. And I think the government is, is governments all around the world are, are really studying that the power that these technology companies have had, and that's leading to a lot of, of changes. And so I think it's going to create a lot of opportunities, but I think within the, the publishing industry, yeah, we're coming out of this scale era where a lot of focus went to this idea that you could build these large businesses to replace the Condé Nast and the Hearst that were going to be digitally centric and they were going to be half technology companies and they raised a whole bunch of venture capital funding. And most of those companies now are valued at less than the money that they raise. So I think the market might be saying something about those models. Yeah. And it's saying that basically the benefits there were just going to be created or accrued by the distribution platforms and that, yeah, it's just a new era. Yeah. I I can remember like earlier, early in my career, there was always this slide that came out, the Mary Meeker slide that showed two lines, basically. I mean, there was probably multiple lines. She did a whole bunch of different versions of it, but it was basically showing that there, there was the growth of time spent online and then the budget spent uh, towards digital advertising And the idea was that there was this big gap and that gap was going to be closed. And the gap did get closed, right? But the money did not go to publishers. A lot of companies were built thinking that money would get transferred to publishers, but that that money got transferred to technology companies by and large. Didn't mean some crumbs didn't fall down to the publishers. That's how the industry has gone. On the other hand, a lot of people who are not in the consumer space have been able to build you know, nice businesses. We saw like Industry Dive had a massive exit. And yeah, and that that was focused on areas that were not being taken over by these technology companies. I think that is the one commonality of that. And you look at the current state of publishing, like where's this where's success right now, right? You see like companies like Axios. Okay, why is Axios successful? It's because the smart brevity, I don't know. I mean, I would say Axios is successful because they found a pot of money that is both very lucrative and they're not in co- competition with Facebook and Google are actually their customers. 
and, and the pot of money is around like, you know, corporate affairs advertising, which is like, oh, regulate us, but don't regulate us like that. Regulate us in a way that's going to benefit us and be able to keep out competitors because big companies, they claim not to like regulation, but they tend to actually like regulation because it blocks out competitors. That's a really smart pot of money to go after, right? Google and Facebook can't do that. Similarly, you look at someone like Penske Media, right? I think when this era sort of ends, it's going to be very strange, the fact that Jay Penske could end up to be the one that emerges from it as one of the sort of leading moguls, if you will, not Jonah Peretti, not uh, not Bank, not Jim Bankoff, certainly not Shane Smith, and that's because like you know Penske has a really interesting collection of mostly niche assets and really well operated, and again found a pot of money that is is a good pot of money, and that's for your consideration ads with Hollywood trade publications. So. There's money to be made in publishing, but it's mostly a hustle. And, and for our audience <laughs> who may not be familiar with Penske, can you uh, detail his uh, operation a bit? Oh, yeah, sure. Like Penske Media owns like, you know, Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, now owns like South by Southwest, has some like niche assets in technology and uh, owns WWD in fashion, some B2B, some B2C. I think the the commonality is like they're geared to specific audiences. No like straight like general news or anything like that. They're not covering wars. It's often geared towards culture, but I think the big thing is like they're well operated, you know? It's yeah. you know, he, he operates businesses really well. And some of these properties are not in the most sexy areas. I know Hollywood's a very sexy area, but it's on the business side really of Hollywood. And now owns Rolling Stone and and so it's a collection of like of consumer, but also business. And I think that you'll see that more because there was always like an unnatural divide between like consumer and B2B and business uh, publication assets that I think will go away. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, there are a number of players who are trying to do kind of the niche, uh, niche roll up, right? Industry dive, you mentioned, you know, Workweek is doing it from a different, from a creator angle instead of a kind of the industry dive model. Mm. Morning Brew is trying to do kind of a, a hybrid approach. What, what are the kinds of approach, and maybe Morning Brew is like more prosumers. I'm not sure exactly how to differentiate it, but how would you kind of describe the, like which, which without saying, you know, specifying the name of the company, just more broadly, like mm. which type of approach do you think is going to be more successful in trying to do these like niche roll-ups? Like if an industry dive was trying to get started in 2023, what might the approach m- make sense? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I think if you look at like work week, I mean, I think the overall thesis is like industry dive, but with creators, right? And there's lots of like theses out there. I'm actually talking with Adam tomorrow. I'm very intrigued by by the model and what they're trying to do. I'm not like super into the creator world because I think it's a challenging model. The solo path is not for everyone. I think it, it provides a tremendous amount of upside, but it's really hard to build enterprise value as just with like a solo person. And like, also like, you know, people get tired, they get burnt out and stuff like this. And there's a lot of risk in like, in, in it just being one person. Right. And I think people have wear out like overall, I think of that myself. Sometimes I do two podcasts a week. I'm like, God, people don't want to listen to me that much. I think that will be come more to the forefront. And I think people have talked about burnout with like on the creator side, but I think that there's audience burnout too. Yeah. 
you know, and I think that is like normal. I, I think about Bill Simmons. I think Bill Simmons actually is a great example of how you build a media company by using the heat of a creator, but not just all being about the creator themselves. Because w- what he was able to do is use his own like quote unquote star power in order to uh, build a collection of others and build a company with uh, a lot of enterprise value and a lot of longevity, I think, but not just be about him, right? When he decides to like just retire and just watch sports, like I think he'll build an asset that will continue on after him. I probably didn't ask you a question about business publications today. Not directly, but I'm particularly interested. <laughs> I wasn't trying to ju- no, no. dodge it. <laughs> but now I'm more interested in the ringer because I've been curious about like the ringer for tech. I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, but even just understanding the ringer better, like how do you think, how do you differentiate like the ringer versus the athletic in terms of like its respective durability? Or, like, how, how do you think about those two businesses differently? Yeah. They're in the same space. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I think every brand is somewhere on the continuum of, between institutional and individual, right? So if you think about the New York Times is completely on the institutional side, right? Like, I don't care if people like complain. It's like, oh, no, I want to be like a star at the New York Times. They had all this. It's like, oh, give me a break. You work for the New York Times. Like, there's upsides and downsides to everything. I live in New York City. Like, I want, I want to have a garage, but guess what? I'm not going to have a garage. Okay. (laughs) That's just not realistic. And it's not realistic to work to the New York times and wanting to be a personal brand. You want to be a personal brand, go somewhere else. Like it's okay. It's fine. And on the other side of that is the individual that's on the side of YouTube or on Substack, really. And I think that those are, you know, kind of similar platform businesses to a degree. And I think brands are figuring out where the, publishing brands and media brands are figuring out where they're going to be on that continuum. And everyone's going to be at a different part of it. I think the weight has gone more towards the individual side than the institutional side, but it has to make sense within, you know, the framework of the brand. Like, you know, the economist just doesn't have bylines on their articles, doesn't get much more institutional than that. Right. And so I think if you think about like Axios is, institutional, but they put the individual at the forefront. I think Semaphore is trying to do that to some degree and, you know, TBD on whether that'll work out. But I think every brand is going to have to come to terms with where they fall on that continuum. Yeah. But like, oh, I'm sorry. The athletic is like, to me, more on the side of institutional than individual. They want to also be a comprehensive brand, whereas the ringer to me is more, it's an eclectic brand. I mean, think about it. Like they... You would not go to like Harvard Business School or Y Combinator or something like this and be like, I'm going to marry sports and pop culture and mix them all up. It just, it doesn't make sense on a spreadsheet. You also don't come up with that kind of brand by pattern matching, right? And I think when you're out, there's too many, not too many, there's a lot of people out there pattern matching. They're going to do the morning brew of crypto. Uh, uh, No, we're going to do the morning brew of AI now. Oh, wait, no, no, wait. We did the morning brew of Web3 before. Okay, that's fine. I get that. <laughs> it's scalable, that's for sure. But you know, I think that if you really want to build like a unique uh, brand, you're going to have to uh, go off the spreadsheet to some degree, and you can't just like take someone else's model and like stamp it out. And there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, safer. Right. It is really interesting. I mean, <laughs> going back to the work week conversation, I'm, I'm, I wonder how it's going to play out in terms of 
which sectors or positions are going to lend themselves to more creator-driven models. Like uh, Lenny Ruchitsky clearly has nailed product managers, and even kind of a broader set. But is, is that going to exist for every position? And that, like, no, you know, yeah, <laughs> it, I don't think it is. And it's funny because, like, I wonder about. I think he's built something like really amazing and stuff like this. And there's a but usually coming after yeah. <laughs> that kind of statement. So I'll just get to the but. But he's coming. He built that. That doesn't exist in a non-zero interest rate era. Right. The zero interest rate phenomenon, there's, you know, that joke like the ZERP, like that's a ZERP phenomenon. I think the fact that there are enough product managers out there to to support like 200,000 subscribers to Lenny Rachitsky's newsletter is a zero interest rate phenomenon. The overhiring in tech allowed for this bloated class. This is my own outside theory. This bloated class of like, quote unquote, product people, which is like, Yes, it's a real role and it's very necessary, but it's also kind of cosplaying tech. You don't actually have to yeah. do the tech part to be in tech, which sounds great as a non-technical person. I don't know. I, I've I've seen I've seen bubbles, and there's a lot that once the bubble pops, there's a lot of stuff that that comes out. And I don't know if technology comes. I don't know if the world needs that many product people. Yeah. Well, to to that end. I mean, you, you've uh, you've spoken a bit about and written a bit about AI and how it will affect media. You know, there's always this question with new technology of does yeah, it, yeah. you know, uh, yes, it replaces some people, but does it create more jobs than it takes back? I mean, do you think, it, you know, once this technology is is really integrated into media companies, that there will be more people working at these media companies or less? Like, how do you see that playing out? I think the future of media is a lot smaller. It's a lot leaner. I think we're entering... Overall, and you know, Mark Zuckerberg called it the year of efficiency. I think it's like, uh, I think it's more than that. It's going to be an efficiency era, and that's going to be driven by a bunch of different factors. I mean, some are just demographic. You know, COVID led to a lot of people leaving the work workforce early, and uh, we're not obviously, you know, we have demographic challenges, not as much as in in Europe, and and um, and also in China is even dealing with. possibility of going in reverse uh, demographically. And, you know, we have immigration, which really uh, helps. But at the same time, the tight labor market is, it's not a passing phenomenon, right? And then on the other hand, you have these tools that are uh, coming that are allowing a lot you can be very efficient without scale. And I think that is the the promise that a lot of, I understand people worrying about technology taking their jobs. I mean, as someone who types words for a living, I can understand that being yeah. a concern. At the same time, like, you know, tech, you can't, you don't generally stop technology advancements. You, genies don't go back in the bottle, right? It just doesn't happen. I think AI is coming at a time of a lot of techno skepticism. So there's already calls to to regulate it and stuff. And I saw Microsoft is, is like, yes, we're in favor of regulation. I'm like, oh, gee, I wonder why Microsoft's in favor of that. Because <laughs> they want to lock in their competitive advantage. They want to lock out competitors. But I mean, yes, I, it, is it going to lead to like more efficient media organizations? Absolutely. Will there be fewer people in them? Yeah, probably. But I think that is inevitable. I don't think the business models support these massive organizations. And we might have to come to terms with the fact that the industry was probably bigger than it should have been really for the value it was being created. And so 
now with these tools, it, they're really good for for a subset of people, and they're going to end up probably having like fewer overall numbers of jobs. But yeah, I've seen, I remember with programmatic when programmatic advertising started, it was going to replace ad sales and stuff. Go on Seller Crowd, like. Anyone who's hired like a salesperson knows they're incredibly expensive. Yep. So I don't know what's happening because programmatic is like has taken over like, you know, digital media and all this. Let me tell you, they're just I went to CES. The salespeople are okay. Yeah. They're okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm I sort of I'm boringly in the middle on this one on a lot of areas. I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm gonna be <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. I got to be honest. This is why I want to get us to get out of like the shouting social media era because I was terrible yeah. at it. Because I'm like, well, I could see that, <laughs> but on the other hand, it doesn't work well. <laughs> yeah, doesn't drive the. the no, that's not a good way to have clicks. That's for sure. <laughs> I want to zoom out and put, put a thought experiment, which is I, I know that venture and media have had a complicated relationship the past decade, and, and many of the you know upstart media you know companies have have not raised a venture, although some have. But let, yeah. let's say for a thought experiment that there was a family office who was dead set on allocating, you know, like a $30 million seed fund to media, uh, me media businesses broadly defined, and they were commercially driven, that, that their goal was to make as much money as possible. And they were asking you, Brian, hey, mm -hmm. uh, help me kind of make sense of the landscape of what opportunities or what types of companies you think over the next, you know, couple of years will be good bets for this, uh, for, for these uh, good investments. How would mm -hmm. you guide the family office into how to think about how to best allocate that money? I mean, I would think, so, I mean, I would say invest in a platform probably at the end of the day, like, right. It's cause like, I think the way, and I think that's why Substack is actually an interesting company right now. And, in, in that, you know, if people go to, it's like, well, they probably only made $25 million last year. And that's true, but I remember writing about YouTube when they had no business model and Mark Cuban s said, oh, this, they'll never make money. So things can change. I know this, like the media industry itself has to get like slimmer and it has to get more efficient, right? And so I would imagine Substack has an opportunity to do what YouTube did. I mean, there's a lot, there are there's thousands and thousands of creators on YouTube and some of them are like Mr. Beast and are building billion dollar brands basically off of YouTube. It's not the only thing Mr. Beast does, but like YouTube is like the hub of what he does. And you can see a path to a similar thing happening to the publishing industry. And usually in these things that it's usually best to put money into the people, you know, picks and shovels and stuff. And so a lot of that is in the platform enablers. But as far as the publishers themselves, I see an opportunity for someone to have a, to invest in a platform that defrays all the infrastructure costs. Because I think what's going to become very clear with Substack is you are going to operate on a platform with the positives and negatives of a platform. Because we've seen, you know, what happens when you depend on platforms as a publisher or even as a marketer, like they change, they call the shots. Now, maybe yep. this time is different. I think one of the differences is with Substack, you can take your email list with you. Yep. So that gives you some leverage that you didn't have on other platforms. But the reality is you got to 
life is about trade-offs. And if you're going to go in on a platform, you're going to have trade-offs. If you're going to go an independent route, you're going to be like, oh shit, man, I got to do all this stuff myself. I got to figure out the ESP. Why did this email get sent out that didn't look right and stuff? I don't have to do any of that on Substack. So it depends on whether people want complete independence. I think an in-between model is the one like you know that like puck is doing and stuff like this and i think that is is interesting where you give a lot of the upsides to operating in the substack type world but you have like a, a platform and an institutional brand that um takes away some of the potential downsides yeah you know so i think there's a lot of opportunities still out there but you know they're mostly smaller opportunities. I think the future of publishing is smaller, not bigger. And I think it plays into what a lot of these tools are going to enable because the only reason to get bigger is to get more efficient, right? Like you want to get efficient. Like you want to focus your energy on what matters, not on all of the infrastructure. And, and that's what sucks all the profits out of these businesses, you know, without the costs, publishing would be a great business. The only way to suck costs out of these businesses has been to scale, right? And that was the whole, but what if you don't have to scale and you can suck the costs out, like using AI enabled tools and stuff to super empower people to be way more productive. You'll have fewer people, but you, they, I see a future where there's fewer people in the publishing, but it's more lucrative for those who are in it. That's my hope if I'm in it, by the way. Let's just be clear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to stay in it, but only if it like comes with the lucrative part. You've thought about writing uh, or kind of expanding to other categories? Or, or I mean, how yeah. do you think about the kind of collective of writers approach? I think it's like that's the part that is most attractive for me because I think the solo path is, it's fine. I mean, like you go through different phases of, of life, but like overall, I think most people want to be part of, you know, we as humans, like we generally, you know, become part of tribes and run in packs and stuff like this. So, you know, I think that there's groups, of, there's some people who want to be, you know, like Ben Thompson and stuff like that. It's like the right thing. And then probably cash. I think in general, most people want to have like a community and like, so I think for me, the path is more, I want to build like a business that, that has, you know, other people as part of it and stuff, because I know what I'm doing for this area. Like I can't do it for like connected TV or something. I mean, I could do it, but do it really poorly. Or even like on the marketing side, I could maybe bluff my way through the marketing side. But to, to, to that end, if you could hire, you know, for any category, what, which categories would you think like most make sense for, you know, your existing audience or what you want to do? Yeah. So I want to go into like high value areas, like whether that's streaming, you know, definitely on the buy side with media buying and, and all the changes going on, or particularly how AI tools are remaking media. Because I think it's important right now. I'm not... I don't have a membership model right now or a subscription model. I'm going to, I'm figuring out like subscriptions. I've been like dragging my feet on it, but in, in B2B, and this is where I sort of part ways with Substack. Uh, I don't think that it has the same dynamics as consumer when it comes to advertising. B2B has always had a marketplace dynamic. There's a reason that there are all these industry events, right? Like, I mean, right now, like I could go to Miami and go to like four different events in this field 
just in Miami. Like I wouldn't even have to leave Miami. I could just go to different places at these various events. You'd be like, why are all these events happen? Because they're networking opportunities. They're how people do business. And like the publisher acts as like a matchmaker between a buy and a sell side. That's how they make money. And it's a valuable role. And I think you can play the same role within newsletters because in your, if you're building like a sustainable media company, you're going to have a big tech stack and you're going to have a ton of tech partners and you're going to not only have a ton of tech partners, they're going to have way more expertise in those areas than you are. So you're going to depend on them for their expertise as much. So I think that sponsorships is is perfectly fine in this area and it wouldn't make sense to do a pure subscription model. But the reality of uh, of that is you got to find areas that a lot is going on and that there is a a commercially viable way to match up like a buy and a sell side. I don't know if that makes it less pure or something, but that's just how business operates. Like I don't think we should pretend otherwise. I wouldn't want to go into areas where there's no money that doesn't last. I mean, that would be like a hobby, not yeah. like a business. Right. Like I like running. Like I could write, I could, I love running. I could write a running newsletter. It'd be easy. I would write it every day. I don't see a path to making money. So I don't do that. Yeah. Like uh, John. Yedniak. Yeah. Yedniak uh, runs aging kind of B2B network. And yeah. all, all those newsletter publications are like uh, very adjacent to each other. And so he gets benefits from scale. So you'd want to do something like that before your customer or for media buyer. Yeah, I think so. But I think the difference is, I don't want to speak for John, but I will. Why not? He's not on here. He can't object. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> he's going to call in and be like, Don't that's totally wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, I think his approach is very much like a institutional model, right? Like, and I think it makes sense like in his market, right? Yeah. I think in media and marketing, you probably want to lean a little bit more towards the individual side, right? And because I believe, particularly in areas that are undergoing like profound change right now, like media and marketing, I think that the conversation is like really important. So I think the kinds of the the kind of brand I want to build is more around conversation. It's not around like explanation necessarily. Like I think like I think weirdly the world needs fewer explainers right now. I don't think the explainer era has worked. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like if we thought of it, if you think if you track back to like when, you know, the like explainers exploded, they, they haven't helped. I feel like, you know, because inevitably they, they just became very cut and dry and like, I'm going to explain to you why the lab leak is stupid, you know, and like, it's actually hurt credibility in many ways. And I think that's a fundamental flaw of journalism in some ways is that you've, you have to present something as a very clear picture of reality when it is a picture. And most of the time you're not even a hundred percent sure, but like the editor has to make it totally like, you know, it's like you talk with 15 people, you know, you're going to hear a bunch of different things and like you end up having to make and that's why you have to caveat everything and stuff like this. And you get the both sidesism. But like, I think that there is a, a lane for being able to like have conversations about like how you make these industries better and who's, I saw this with 
the events that uh, we did at my last job. It's like people learn from each other and there's a lot of power in people discussing problems and bringing their own experiences and people learning from each other. So I think that there'll be different types of media. And I think Substack is kind of pointing the way towards that. You know, because a lot of the a lot of the things going on in Substack are a little bit different than what they would be like on like a website, I feel like. And I think that's because it's at least it started as newsletters. And I think like the act of writing a letter is different than writing an article. You know, I've been writing articles my whole life. I write letters now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's really interesting. I've been curious to, I've been exploring something in, in tech media. And, you know, if, if I were to think about like, you know, I've been in venture for the last, you know, seven years, but I, and if you were to say, hey, what's been the most interesting kind of tech media, you know, companies or people to come out in the last five years, I would say something like maybe the information. Uh, I would say mm -hmm. maybe, um, you know, mostly on the individual side, I would say like Lenny Rajitsky is one example. I would say Packy McCormick is another example. I would say um, Harry Stebbings covering kind of mm -hmm. the VC industry is another example from the podcast side. Yeah. And Harry and Packy don't really do like th those people who I mentioned and the information I'm impressed with, but it feels like that's not super impressive as an overall industry uh, in, in, in tech media. And so I'm curious just how you think about tech media more broadly and what advice you might give me if, if I was dead set on mm. pursuing something here and where you think the opportunity might be or how, how should I think about it? Yeah. I mean, I've seen like, it's funny cause I've seen tech media like evolve quite a bit. Like just, I've always been kind of peripheral to it in some ways because I've always covered how technology has impacted and in, in particular the media and marketing industries. Although at my previous job, we had uh, publications on beauty and fashion and also one in, in retail and for an unfortunate period of time, one in fintech, but let's not talk about that. that was disastrous. But I think what, so I've always like seen tech as a horizontal story. Do you know what I mean? Not a vertical. Yeah. And I always saw, and this is like going back like 20 years ago, you know, the before like the tech media was the enemy of like the tech people. It was the total opposite. Like it's yeah. always course correction. Like totally. they were the total lap dogs. Yeah. Like that was the craziest things. Like I remember I used to refuse to like hire anyone in San Francisco because I was like, they'll just be captive of the tech people. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, this is a recent phenomenon, this idea of this antagonistic relationship between the, between tech media and the tech people. It's like, yeah. usually they were like hand in glove. They would go to the same parties if they, but does anyone have a party in San Francisco? Do they, <laughs> they don't have parties. Do That's they? A great question. Whatever. They would go on the same hikes together and <laughs> Like, so this is a very recent phenomenon. Anyway, what I always saw is like the tech media got really weird when technology absolutely ceased to be a, a vertical, right? Like what, cause what are you covering? Like, what are you covering? Technology is part of every single freaking story. Like how do you cover climate without covering tech? I cover audit any without covering, you know? So I think tech media itself got like kind of stretched to the point where it needed to, to, you know, unbundle to some degree and be verticalized. And so there's obviously people who cover tech from the angle of just VC. It's like, who, 
follow the ping pong balls of the money and stuff like this. I find that kind of boring, but like, you know, I think that there's what you're seeing within, within tech is these individuals that have a lot that go narrow and deep in a specific area, right? Like, I mean, Packy is a good example of, I mean, the guy goes deep, let's say. I always I would always joke with Packy. It's like 16,000 words. Come on. Man. Yeah, exactly. Come on. <laughs> Can you just like let's feed this in the chat GPT? Like, <laughs> let's get it down. But like he goes obviously incredibly deep into in particular Web3. He's gotten a little like eclectic, you know. Uh, but you know, I relied on on him that, you know, like, and I think with someone like like you mentioned, like Harry you know, being able to have one foot in both worlds, like, cause now he is a VC, right. the same thing with like Lenny, like he brings the perspective of a practitioner to the table and that's unique. You know, the journalist is always the observer. And I think what you're seeing with some of the most powerful Substack is people are going to have one foot in both worlds that provides a really interesting perspective. And it's really hard because most people who are really good at, at the practicing are not good at the writing and stuff. I think that, you know, that's unique to have someone that can do both and not like write one time. I mean, do it yeah. like, if not every day, a couple times a week for right. years. That's yeah. a different prospect than like, oh, I wrote like an essay. Yeah. It's like, good. Take it to medium. If you're going to do a newsletter, you got to hit send yeah. and uh, you're going to have to do it like again and again and again and again. Um, but I think you see that with like, you know, the pragmatic engineer. Yeah. No, he's done great. Yeah. You know, I keep mispronouncing his name. Is it gurgly? I, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I okay. just call him the pragmatic engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call him the pragmatic engineer. So the pragmatic engineer is, you know, he is an engineer. He's a, and a pragmatist, I guess. And that perspective is incredibly valuable. And I think that's that's why he's he's done a good job. It doesn't mean you can't do a good job as a quote unquote traditional journalist. There's just different, it's okay. I don't know why everyone thinks everything has to be one or the other. Everyone gets all threatened by anyone coming into their lane. Totally. That, that's actually the thesis of what I'm <laughs> exploring is like, could you find a Lenny for, you know, engineer, Lenny for engineering is the pragmatic engineer, but for different positions or fintech or different you know, sectors and you know, would they benefit from the collective of each other? But one thing I haven't figured out quite yet is like the business, how do they want to be incentivized? And do you, you know, how do they, they get? Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? I mean, and this is my problem with the sort of creator side of stuff, right? Is like, sometimes like, you know, being a creator does not just, I don't know what that means, right? It, it sounds like you're not, you don't have a lot of expertise in the area. Creating is not an expertise. There needs to be a different word for the Lennies, uh, the, like the business influencer, but even influencer sounds weird. Too. Business influencer. Yeah, there's not a good word because I, it's like one of those things, you know what you're saying, but I think like when, like that's my problem when, when Adam talks about creators and like business, I'm like, what does that mean? Just because you worked at American Bank, what, why are you a creator? Like, what does that mean? Like, if you're going to do a thing where it's like practitioners who have decided that they want to like, you know do this in order to scale their expertise, that's a different ball game to me. I'm somewhere like, as always, distressingly in the middle because like, because the middle always gets killed yeah. because I do have, but I do have experience like operating like media businesses. I was the president of the last company. It's not like I was running Condé Nast or anything like that, but like, you know, I had a, like the tech team and the product team and design and events. And like, I had to do all that. And now I'm like, you know, 
I'm in QuickBooks now, so I can talk about that kind of stuff and doing like all the spreadsheet nonsense. But I think like that kind of one foot in both worlds, like really helps, I feel like with perspective and it also builds, I guess, a degree of empathy, Yeah, which I think is sometimes lacking. I think some of the backlash between the journalists and, and the tech people, it comes down to that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the working slogan I had for the idea was where experts talk, but I actually think oh, where yeah. practitioners talk might be better. Like I, I really, I think it's better expert. I, yeah, you're right. I would track the expert thing because like expert is like, it's not good. Right. Cause it's usually used as it's usually a form of credentialism. Yeah. Right. And like this idea and like, look, I think a lot of journalists do that cause there's no credential to be a journalist. Yeah. There's none. You don't need you. You don't need one. There's no badge, and so when people are like, "Oh, well, that's not really journalism," it's like, "Sorry, you don't get a badge." Like, there's not. And trying to parse what's journalism, what's not, it's like you know, people just like good, reliable stuff that they trust. And the reality is, people trust individuals more than they trust uh, institutions, and that's a point of leverage. And ultimately, you know, the market will decide like who is who is trustworthy in some ways. And so I don't know if people proclaiming to be experts is the answer. I think it's just proven out, right? I mean, we saw this with COVID, like some of the, you know, my God, some of the Mueller experts then became like virology experts, yeah, then they were crypto experts, and now they're AI experts. And... Oh, wait, no, they were like uh, military experts too. <laughs> Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, they're completely depleted around like <laughs> Kherson Oblast. It's like, what? Weren't yeah. you just talking about Web3? <laughs> yeah, no, no shortage of experts. There, with, with 10 minutes remaining, there are two trends I want to get your perspective on. So, so I'll say them up front. One is the trend of tech companies like, you know, uh, HubSpot and, and that the podcast network or the HubSpot and Russell. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, uh, you wrote about Robinhood uh, kind of spinning out, you know, their media property. There's also the trend of, you know, media companies trying to build tech companies on oh, top Jesus. of <laughs> um, or creators like Mr. Beast does it. You mentioned, you know, he, he has the commerce company, but there are creators who are trying to build like software, you know, cars and bids, YouTube channel, just build a cars marketplace uh, on, on top of that. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that trend going forward. And if that is something that you think will work both ways, or it's really just mm. tech companies going to be buying media companies. Well, on the publishers, like becoming tech companies, I'll like go back. I think Joe Marchese like said it to me, like on a podcast, like anytime, like a publisher claims to be a tech company run, <laughs> never a good sign. Yeah, no, that's one lane that probably, you know, publishers should know better. I mean, I've seen it with them trying to license CMSs and all this stuff like this. It never works. Yeah. I think like a lot of tech companies see that like media is a very great way to get attention and it's a great way to find customers and it's a great way to build influence and credibility and stuff like this as a business it's incredibly challenged like for all of there's like a big delta between impact and monetization and so you know i think media has a long history of being the front end to other businesses you know i mean when i was growing up Whatever NBC was owned by GE, never really understood why. I'm not sure GE really understood it. But you see this, you know, and it changes the economics when you look at like Amazon and how they're barging into streaming. And I think that will absolutely continue. I think the idea of 
technology companies operating these publishing operations and stuff like this is completely overblown. They lose interest. It's such a long game. And like a lot of things look great when looked a lot better when people's stock prices were 75% higher. I mean, Coinbase was going to, I mean, that guy wanted to make like uh, films and the new Hollywood with web. What happened to that? I don't hear about that as much anymore. What happened to that? Strange. As a stockholder, I kind of understand why uh, those ambitions have been changed. I mean, Shopify was going to do all that too. What happened to Shopify Studios? I haven't seen all these like entrepreneur movies that they're documentaries. Like that's what we need more of. Although the Coinbase guy did make a documentary about himself. That was good. <laughs> we'll see more of that, but I have real doubts that there'll, there'll be much of a commitment to it. I think places like Subs, uh, Substack, HubSpot are really unique in that like HubSpot really in, it almost like invented, didn't invent, but it really became, grew itself around inbound marketing. And so it really fits completely within their strategy to, to have like media as part of it. It's not that much of a stretch, even for their kind of technology, to be honest with you. But I think that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of exceptions to the rule. Yeah. So one model of kind of rolling up creators, like this work, work is doing, they're hiring most of them and doing some versions of joint ventures with, with some of them. But do you think there's going to be almost like a, a VC for, that is the wrong word, for creators or for writers where you, uh, they, you know, people like yourself raise a little mm -hmm. bit of money in, in like a revenue financing type way or something? Or I mean, there could be. I think one of the things with the, I'm going to say writer, the list, like journalists and stuff like this are not going to almost become like, you know, quote unquote entrepreneurs. It's just a different, it's a different mindset and it's a different, I think the things that make a lot of people good journalists are probably work against them in in running their own business and stuff, because the nature of the profession is to think like, wait, why is this not true? Why will this not work? And like, you know, and like, that's probably not the best thing to do when you're trying to build a business. So I think it'll probably be a fairly niche phenomenon still like this, you know, people going out on their own. That's why I'm still like really interested in what I call like micromedia that gives people some of the benefits of a more entrepreneurial path, but without like the extreme downside risk and the pain in the ass parts that aren't for everyone. And I feel like we went through a period where it's been like very lionized, like, you know, entrepreneurialism and stuff. And I think that's overall good. But the reality is like everyone has different paths to take and it's not like one path is better than another path. And having like more flexible arrangements where people have more autonomy and yes, have some upside, but I think a lot of times people want autonomy. And I think that there's going to be a lot more different types of publishing structures that enable that and hopefully more upside. But like, I don't think that, you know, everyone needs to be a solo entrepreneur. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, Substack takes care of a lot of the back end, and they're a great company. I use them myself, but they don't offer cash, <laughs> or they did, but they, they they used to, yeah, yeah, only to a small subset. I'm curious if, yeah, I look in my history with like journalists, like they don't even they don't look at like upside. They just look at salary and stuff like this, and they want to make a good like nobody goes into that field for money. I mean, these are fairly smart people. And so like, yeah. I would, if that was their motivation, like they could make more money being a real estate agent. Like yeah. why, why would they, 
I mean, nothing against being a real estate agent. To that end, I mean, that's why I wonder if there will be a VC model that enables, like I totally get the small collectives, that will totally be a thing. But will there be like a VC at scale if these writers aren't like, are, are more than willing to give up a percentage of their up, cap their upside to cap their downside? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Will there be like uh, the Substack, you know, investing model, but at scale in a way that could actually make sense for both the writer and the investor? Yeah, I'm surprised like that that some VC hasn't tried to roll up a bunch of Substacks, you know. But again, I think the problem ends up being just figuring out the economics of and, and the autonomy part, because I think what a lot of people want is the autonomy. Almost, It's almost as important as you know, the potential upside, right? Like, and then depending on the person, you, we always hear about the people who are like, you know, making way more than they made at like Bloomberg or something like this. You know, the reality for most people is not that, you know, you know, having like a salaried job is better in many ways. You have more guarantees and stuff like this. I mean, I just sold a deal and I was like, whoa, yes, and stuff like this. And then I'll probably go like two weeks without selling one. I'll be like, oh no. Like, you know, in December, in late December, I had $0 dedicated to this year. Zero. That as of that moment, nothing. I was going to make nothing in the year. So like, better get moving. And that's probably not for a lot of people. I don't like act like I'm like some, some sort of unique person. I'm just probably was able to have enough of a cushion at this point to get through the the scary moments. Yeah. That, I think that's a great good place to to wrap on a note of a uh, uh, realism. Oh God. Brian, thanks so much for, for joining the podcast. I highly <laughs> yeah, recommend thanks, Eric. listeners check out the, the rebooting uh, newsletter as a must read as well as when the podcast is a is must listen, both the rebooting podcast and also the one you, uh, you do. Uh, what, it's called People. Uh, People versus Algorithm. Algorithms. It's like yes. a discussion show. Yeah. Troy Young and Alex Schleifer. That's great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. Awesome.